Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Aoife Barry, and this week, in the age of disinformation and misinformation, how does fact-checking work? Propaganda and false information are not new concepts, but since 2016 the words misinformation and disinformation have entered the popular lexicon in a new way. Thanks to social media and the proliferation of the internet, it's easier than ever to target people with fake, misleading and manipulative information. You probably remember those WhatsApp messages during the rounds during the early days of the pandemic, or you might have seen false information about the invasion of Ukraine popping up online. One of the ways of fighting this is through fact-checking and debunking, which are a big part of the journal's work. And during April, the Good Information Project on the journal looked at the fight against this behaviour and what is being done about it. So this week on the podcast, we'll look at how fact-checking plays a role in fighting back against false news and misinformation, and how it's done. Joining me to explain are the deputy editor of the journal, Christian Bone, who heads up our fact-checking project, and Kiran O'Connor, an analyst at the Institute of Strategic Dialogue and a friend of the pod. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. How's it going? Thanks very much. Christine, I'll start with you. Just how big a problem is disinformation and misinformation right now? And you might need to explain the difference between the two as well for people who aren't quite sure. Yeah, I'll start with that, actually. The difference between the two is disinformation is deliberate and misinformation is false news that spread, not necessarily intentionally. So, for example, like disinformation might be Russia coming out and saying something about the invasion in Ukraine and deliberately putting out this false information about um, a story. Whereas misinformation might be your mom sending you a WhatsApp message saying, um, if you drink hot tea, you won't get coronavirus or, you, do you know what I mean? Someone's passing on information that they don't necessarily intend to be false or to be untrue, but it is. I don't know how big, how much it really matters. Like sometimes people get very into the weeds about the difference between the two. I think really the important thing is just looking at the the amount of false stories out there. It doesn't really matter whether or not it's intentional. Uh, I don't think too much. And I think when we're talking about how big a problem it is, there's probably two ways to look at it. You can look at the amount of misinformation that's out there, like the volume of it. And you can also look at the impact it's having. And those two things together will tell you how big a problem it is. And I suppose the answer to the first part of it about how much misinformation or disinformation is out there is we literally do not know. If we knew, it would answer so many questions. It would tell us so much about uh, the, the, the world we live in. But we just we just honestly don't know uh, how much is out there. And that's partly because the platforms, the social media platforms, don't give that information out kind of understandably like it, it you know they, the platforms have done a lot more about um, misinformation in the last few years but they've never come out and just put their hands up and said listen just so you know there's been 100 million pieces of misinformation published on Facebook or on Twitter in the last few weeks or the last month and part of that is probably because it's so it can be so hard to tell the difference like there's a spectrum of misinformation and it can be very hard to say sometimes it's very clear when something is misinformation And then there are times when it's murkier, like when it's somebody who might put something up on Facebook or Twitter, maybe they've half heard it or they're not totally sure. Like, should that get flagged in the same way as Russia putting out fake information about Ukraine? Like, how how do you even measure that? It's it's a really difficult one. And so we don't exactly have numbers for how much of it is out there. But what we can say is that we're seeing an awful lot more of it, particularly at the moment. And that's both in Ireland and worldwide. And we've talked to a lot of other fact checkers around the world. And what we can see is that it scales up when there's big world events and it scales down again when there isn't, uh, when these things aren't happening. So say like with COVID um, with the vaccines, with Russia and Ukraine at the moment, we're seeing just huge amounts of it. We just, we, we can like anecdotally, we can like look at the numbers that we're seeing every day, the amount of misinformation we're seeing every day and say, okay, we're in the middle of a bit of a wave right now. And then I guess 
The other way to look at it is to look at the impact that it's having. So if you think about, you know, all the big kind of misinformation stories of the past few years, like Brexit or Trump, um, in Ireland, we saw some of it around like the, the Eighth Amendment referendum or the water charges protests. And it's it's almost like day to day, it's just ticking along in the background. But when these big world events happen, it's just like a magnet for misinformation. And we see an awful lot more. And it's just really hard to tell how deep the water we're swimming in is really. And so looking at all of that, then, Kiron, going to you with, with my next question, is this a problem that we've always faced, but it might just seem worse than it is now because it's more visible now due to social media um, based on kind of what Christine was saying there about how it kind of can ebb and flow? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that we've we've always had some form of it. Uh, people and groups have always sought to use misleading or false information to, to further their own interests or convince the masses of, of something that might not be explicitly true, but serves their interests but yeah enter social media into that uh into that phenomenon and in the last 10 or more years uh what's really happened is that social media has accelerated everything so if you if you think back to maybe uh the arab spring and the notion that social media would inevitably lead to more democratization across the world what we actually didn't realize is that these same tools, these same systems online could be used by uh, authoritarians to stamp down on dissent and to flood online spaces with false or misleading information. But they could also be used by people to simply share content and share clips or videos or, or information that they can't fully stand over with and they can't fully stand over the veracity of these claims. So social media really has just accelerated uh, something that's always been but been a present uh, part of society and, and there's more of it now but there's also more tools to track it and and more ways to make it visible i mean if you think about the impact of uh, of myths or disinformation uh like christine mentioned platforms really only have the the true answer but it does kind of uh so much of it does kind of fall into that gray zone as well as to what is myths and disinformation and how is it defined and that also makes it very hard to to track and study as a researcher no more than a news organization as well and and because it's now so visible because of social media, because like you're saying, social media is a space where a lot of this is happening now. I mean, does that visibility make it easier to fall for this sort of thing? Or is it even, you know, can you even tell that in any way? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, nowadays, um, with seismic uh, political events, be it Brexit or, or the election of Trump or even uh, COVID-19 in the last two years, all of which creates multiple versions of the truth for, for and there are now many ways uh, in which not only to post and promote your version of the truth but you to also find uh, communities of people who believe this version of the truth so yes it is easier to fall for than ever before and this is the consequence of us living in quite a polarized age and we're living in the the kind of consequences of major events in the in the past 20 years that have uh, chipped away at people's trust in institutions and the accepted order and things not just not working like they used to and all these kinds of phenomenons create the environment create the conditions for people to to turn away from their accepted um, voices of truth be it mainstream media or politicians in government and turn towards other people who do uh, offer them uh, an answer who do offer them someone even even to blame so in many ways like that yes it's easier to fall for than ever before because of so many conditions within and, and online but also offline as well and when someone is is willingly muddying the water with with this information uh, something that perhaps has a grain of truth but but falls somewhere in that gray zone 
one, it's a particularly difficult challenge for news organizations and for, for fact checkers alike as well. And one way of kind of fighting back against all of this that people will be familiar with is fact checking. And Christine in the journal, you head up our fact checking and debunking sections. And so for anybody who maybe doesn't know, how does fact checking work exactly? And I'll get you to talk through a particular fact check that you've done maybe as an example in a bit. But, but to start off, like what is involved with fact checking generally? So there's about 350 um, fact checking organisations around the world and we probably all work uh, like a little bit differently. But at its most basic, fact checkers will find a claim, something that's being said, being said in their society or in their, in their country. They'll either debunk it or explain why it's true and then they put it out into the world. Um, so that's kind of the basic formula of it. And then there's lots of ways to do it within that. So first of all, people will look at different kinds of claims, like what if some fact checkers will look at things, say that only politicians say or things that are said in like the public discourse, whereas some fact checkers will focus more on things that are said on social media. So things that might be going viral in their countries. Like when we started fact checking in the journal in, I think, 2016, we were quite wonky. You know, it was very almost like politely correcting the record. We were looking for things said in the door. We were looking for um, things said on current affairs programmes. It was very much, you know, about the, the public debate. But now coronavirus changed all that. And now we'd look much more at what's being shared on social media because we think that that's having, in some ways, it can be more impactful if people are sharing false information in their in their networks. And then I suppose one thing that's different is fact checkers will have different ways of doing their fact checks. What I mean there is like some fact checkers might write 2000 words, you know, almost like an essay to try and debunk something if they found some a claim that's being made that isn't true. Whereas other fact checkers will do something like they might just create a meme um, to try and debunk a claim that's being made. And then that meme can then be shared in the places where the misinformation was shared. So it can be shared on, on WhatsApp or in, in messaging apps. Um, so there's kind of, there's lots of different approaches to fact-checking, I would say, um, within within the fact-checking sphere. And what are the biggest challenges then? I mean, is there a particular type of information that's really hard to tackle or a particular type of of claim that that is almost impossible to, to fact-check? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say... One of the biggest challenges is the fear of amplifying something that otherwise wouldn't get attention paid to it. And I always think of, say, Gemma Doherty as being an example of this, uh, as something we would see in, in Ireland. And I suppose what I mean by that is that if you think of somebody making a false claim on a platform like, say, Telegram or BitChute, where they might have a couple of hundred subscribers or followers. And then if we do a fact check or if, if another organisation does a fact check of their work, suddenly we're bringing maybe tens of thousands of people to pay attention to this person. And they might have only otherwise had a couple of, you know, maybe double digits, maybe triple digits, people paying attention to it. And there's always that tension there as fact checkers about what you choose to fact check and then the things that you don't actually fact check, the things you kind of step away from. And sometimes I think that that's almost as important a decision as the things that you do fact check, because you have to be really aware of what you're bringing attention to, if that makes sense. Um, just because you don't want to bring their message, which wouldn't otherwise have been seen by lots of people. And suddenly you're just bringing it to a huge amount of a huge number of people. And then suddenly, you know, maybe some of them will be persuaded. Some of them won't, you know, take the fact check on board. They'll just look at what the person was saying. So I think that fear of amplification is a big challenge. One of the other ones, I guess, is just the resources, because there's a huge amount of misinformation out there and just not enough fact checkers. It's really intensive work, both by reporters and by editors. It can take, you know, a fact check can take a good few days to get done. It's it, it might take two days, three days. And it's some of the most kind of labor intensive journalism that there is. So, it's you know, it's hard. It's very expensive. So just on a practical level, just the logistics are actually very tough. It feels like, you know, you're trying to put out a fire with, 
you know buckets of water rather than with a giant hose you're just you're trying to do what you can but it's just it is it is a tough one so I would say that are probably the main challenges and also we've seen misinformation change a bit in the last few years where it used to be very clear-cut someone would say something and it would be very black and white somebody might say something like Ireland ranks second in the world when it comes to this and you would look into it and be like actually no we're not even in the top 50 so that's really clear-cut like we can tell that that's untrue and the last few years we've seen an awful lot of things claims that are being made that are just kind of disingenuous or missing context and it can be hard to tell whether people are making the claims in good faith or not or if they're deliberately just trying to muddy the waters and you know we see that a huge amount with Russia where a lot of the information they're putting out about the war it's just trying to muddy the waters um, it's trying to make people, you know, not believe in, you know, the mainstream media or the things they're hearing in their country. And sometimes some of that can be really difficult to fact check. So I think that kind of sense of the grey areas, the growth in the grey areas has made things uh, tougher for fact checkers, for sure. And have you got an example of a fact check for our listeners, something that kind of illustrates how, you know, a claim that you came across and then how, how you checked it out and came to the conclusion? Um, you know, one obviously that that is kind of easy, easy to explain because sometimes they are quite um, easy to kind of talk through or explain how you do them, aren't they? Yeah, there's kind of a joke in the newsroom that I will always say to people, oh, let's that fact check looks straightforward. Let's give it a go. And then three days later, the reporter is like sweating their way through it and they're on like their 2000 words and saying, Christine, this is not straightforward, <laughs> which happens so frequently because they often end up being quite naughty. But one that we saw fairly recently or actually one it's popped up a few times over the last like since coronavirus, the pandemic started. It was this claim that any country that asked its citizens to uh, wear masks was actually uh, breaking the Nuremberg Code and it was actually a war crime for a country to say to people, you need to wear a mask. Um, and this happened on Facebook an awful lot. You know, we always think of Facebook as being kind of the original home of misinformation because so much of it still lives there. And this was just a classic Facebook one where it was just shared repeatedly, really since March 2020, and kept popping up. It would go away and then it would come back again. And we saw it again um, in Ireland earlier this year. And it was just a fascinating one because the way that we had to fact check it was, you know, we just checked what's in what was in the Nuremberg Code and to see what was there and what wasn't and we could just see right there's nothing in this about uh, whether or not a country should tell people to wear masks there's nothing here about the idea that this would actually be a war crime and I think what was interesting about that one was trying to find out where it came from and why it had resurfaced and why it was so viral because it did seem that it was just literally one person had kind of cobbled together some wording they'd taken some wording from the Nuremberg Code um, after World War II and then they patched it together with something else that they found from like a UN uh, document and added in their own kind of little sprinkle of uh, misinformation too, to make it look real. Like if you saw the shared on Facebook, it did look quite real. But when you actually read it, the text of it, it was it was dodgy. You could tell that there was something not quite right here. Like, why would this be written down? Why would this be codified in, you know, a, a document about war crimes? Um, but it was just a really interesting example of, you know, we were able to debunk it quite easily. But for a lot of people, um, it obviously looked believable enough for them to share it so interesting to hear about how you kind of work your way through a fact check and figure out what's true and what isn't and and Kieran we've seen a lot of that recently in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine but in the open source intelligence space or what's also called the OSINT community if I'm pronouncing it correctly um, who do a lot of work in verifying information online could you maybe quickly explain what that is for people and let us know like are there any particular issues with this approach because it's fairly new isn't it in the kind of evolving landscape of, of fact checking. Yeah, uh, open source intelligence or OSINT is it's a term taken from uh, intelligence communities, I believe, and essentially it's it's the 
it's the use of, you know, we're all very uh, aware of how to Google things and how to find out more information or find the opening hours of, of a shop or something like that. But essentially, it's taking that approach that on the web, on the open web, that is the um, social media platform, but also websites, but even resources like Google Maps, there are uh, a wealth of resources that can help you get closer to an incident or an event or can help you uh, gleam more information about a person or about a public figure. So essentially pu putting a Google search and putting the idea of searching online kind of on steroids, just trying to find out more information uh, that, that is publicly available or semi-publicly available. So anything except hacking, that kind of thing. Um, so then online, there's a very active community of OSINT practitioners. Uh, essentially, you may see them on Twitter. They'll have OSINT in some variety within their username or handle. And essentially, these are people who, who will comb pages and groups on many different platforms or websites uh, related to an ongoing event and, and most regularly to an ongoing conflict. And they'll, uh, they'll try and find content from local sources or entities that appear to be close to events on the ground. And then they'll share this content uh, on a public platform like Twitter, which would be their kind of hosting uh, main platform. And they'll add possible details uh, on the location of, or, or a date of an incident and essentially uh, offers up to other people who are kind of looking at this incident and, and, and then all together in the best uh, version of how OSINT works, there'll be a kind of crowdsourced attempt at trying to piece together uh, what has happened. So to put this into context with uh, the invasion of Ukraine, even before February 24th, there was lots of OSINT accounts that were sharing videos on Twitter of Russian military equipment and tanks and things like this being moved across Russia. And often what you saw was that there was a watermark on the video that showed that it actually originally came from uh, TikTok. So someone who lived in the middle of Russia got this video of these tanks moving across a, 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 a railway crossing, put the video online. It's, it's, it's these people who conduct these searches, try and find this content. And you use things like trying to get close to like location searches and things like that. So that's generally the, the, the breakdown of in an age of, of social media, uh, where there is so much video footage, uh, finding a way to surface important visual evidence of possible atrocities or airstrikes, it's, it's very important work. And uh, there's been wide OSINT interest in Syria, for example, over the last 10 years. So it's not something that has just kind of sprang out of the ground out of nowhere. But this kind of work must be done in, in combination with verification best practice. Uh, I used to work for a news agency called Storyful, which has its origins in Ireland. And the kind of the, the three fundamentals around trying to verify a clip there were trying to corroborate the date in which the video was taken, the location where it was filmed, and the source i.e. the person who filmed it or the person who shared it online first. Uh, there is no authority that says you are now an OSINT analyst. Anyone can be one, but, but the danger is that if you are inexperienced or you are too closely following the mantra of trying to be first or to chase engagement uh, rather than trying to be 100% accurate. So this decentralized aspect then comes with its own difficulties and, and then as a result. And, and that's why any news organization who considers using amateur footage sourced online should do their own verification work so that if a clip is shared claiming to show 
a strike in Mariupol, for example, that you do then go on Google Maps yourself and try and find the building that's in the footage to confirm that it is in fact in Mariupol. These kinds of, of fundamentals, or you should rely on on the on the established experts in the field, people like or organizations like Storyful or Bellingcat or the New York Times or others who have come into the space in the last few years. Uh, open source research and methods that utilize uh, citizen journalism and an eyewitness te- testimony captured on video have been key to to watching it events unfold on the ground from afar in real time, but it's also a good reminder and a good lesson that even with this access to a conflict, we still can't accept everything at, at face value and must remain critical and use those those verification skills and, in, and critical thinking in, com- in combination with, with supplementary info gathering and kind of traditional reporting as well. So it's, it's a marriage of all these things together, really. Yeah, very good point there. I think for anybody who's seen the wealth of information on on uh, social media to know that, you know, you can do your own research too. And maybe, like you said, they're not take everything at face value. But even with all of these tools that you just mentioned there and that Christine mentioned also, Kiron, is state-sponsored disinformation more difficult to tackle? I mean, is that at the, the kind of top of the pile when it comes to the difficult things to, to figure out, fact check, debunk, etc.? Yes, uh, yes, it is. Uh, and for a few reasons. The very nature that it is state-sponsored, what that means is that uh, it's it's a comment or it's a statement by perhaps a government official or it's a narrative that has been funneled through uh, state-controlled or state-backed news organizations, uh, the same organizations that for many people carry a lot of credibility or trust. So the example that I have in my mind right now is is RT, Russia Today. Um, these same networks of news organizations like RT or Sputnik or RIA Novosti, all Russian state-backed news organizations, they pump out stories and, and content that, that uncritically repeat or amplify uh, the comments of, of Kremlin officials or pro-Kremlin voices, including uh, many conspiracies that are easily proved false, and but many people use kind of the mental shortcut or the heuristic to interpret these claims as factual because it has come from a news organization that they have a history of following or watching or trusting over many previous years. But the second point is that many disinformation narratives do have a grain of truth in them, perhaps have a misleading or, or false claim sandwiched in between a wider narrative that has many uh, truthful points. And when shared then by uh, a politician or a state-backed news organization, this might be enough for people to say to themselves, well, yes, that is true. And then maybe this ne- the next time, uh, next thing that I'm a little unsure of must be true as well. And then also, there's also a social media component to state-sponsored disinformation. Diplomatic accounts are, are given more leeway when it comes to potential violations of platforms between the guidelines, and, and states like Russia uh, use this to disseminate narratives that appear to run directly counter to the truth and, and, and as a direct counter to the efforts of fact-checkers. And that's probably why, for example, uh, after the uncovering of the horrific crimes in Buka in Ukraine, uh, Russia's embassy in Ireland said that there are no facts to prove Russian forces are responsible, but so did Russia's embassy in the UK and others worldwide too, because they have sort of an immunity from uh, platform efforts to, to combat these things. And there may be flags or labels attached to certain claims, but these accounts have a significant reach across online. And for, for fact-checking organizations to then try and counter or critique that, it makes it very difficult because you have a, often a verified account putting out a narrative that is then willingly amplified by others. And it makes the work of fact-checkers uh, very difficult. 
And Christine, Kiron was talking there, obviously about Russia and Ukraine. We've touched on it a good few times in the podcast so far. But have you seen a difference between kind of what Kiron is talking about there, um, the types of misinformation that's been shared post invasion of, of Ukraine compared to, say, the last big swave, which is during the pandemic? Have things changed in terms of the tools people are using, the way people are approaching it? Or is it just similar, just about a different topic this time? Yeah, it is fairly similar in that both of them were kind of like greatest hits of misinformation and disinformation in that you're just seeing so many different types of it. So there'd be like manipulated photographs. You'd see um, like with the war, you're seeing footage from previous wars or from video games being passed off as if it's happening now. Uh, there's false news reports. Then there's obviously just the outright untruths, which Kieran mentioned a couple there. But like, say, you know, Russia saying that Ukraine was carrying a genocide in the Donbass region or the women at the maternity hospital in Mariupol were actors, you know, that kind of thing. So it's almost like the spectrum. So when you talk about like, say, with the manipulated photographs, there was one that was out this week and was saying that it showed it was a video of Zelensky on a video call with Elon Musk, I think it was. And it somebody had photo, had superimposed an enti- a huge amount of cocaine onto the desk in front of him. And it was so clearly, well, I mean, I'm sorry, I was going to say it was so clearly false. I mean, you could look at it and think, oh, maybe it was true. But if you just if you if you paid a little bit of attention to it, it just you could tell that it just didn't look right. It looked a bit it looked a bit dodgy. It didn't, it looked like someone had just um, managed to get it into the video. So we are seeing like a, an awful lot of different varieties of um, disinformation around at the moment. And that happened with COVID too. Like with COVID, some of the things that we saw were, you know, people using WhatsApp for the first time to share um, misinformation. A lot of people might have gotten those messages, you know, on their phone from family members, you know, about the, the army were going to go out onto the streets or, you know, that there were cases in the local hospital and the HSE weren't telling people about them. And then that spread, it was paired across like other messaging um, apps and other social media platforms and in loads of different formats. It was the same thing where you were seeing fake photos, fake footage, um, false news reports being shared across loads of different formats. So they, they do actually echo each other quite a bit. You know, there, there's just so much. Um, it just shows like all the different ways that the, the false news can can be shared and can be spread when there's a huge news event like this. And Kiran, is there a danger of overlooking misinformation that might come from a particular side, say, in a conflict? I mean, I'm thinking about the invasion of Ukraine. Might people sometimes be tempted to believe that there's only misinformation coming from one particular side? Yes, and that's a really important point. And it's it's an important question because it, it forces us to consider the, the nature of propaganda and, and misinformation and, and how it mixes with our own uh, biases in Ireland and, and across Europe, uh, where the vast majority of people uh, support Ukraine's right to self-determination, right to defend itself, have sympathy for a, a sovereign democratic country that has been invaded, and and correctly, uh, and I'll show my biases, but, but correctly see Russia as the aggressor here. Uh, the best example, I suppose, of, of, of Ukrainian misinformation is probably the the mythical ghost of Kiev figure. So this was someone in the in the first week, or this was a figure who was uh, talked about by by Ukrainian government officials and media organizations online in the first week of the conflict that had uh, taken out a number of Russian targets and essentially was a was a whiz of a of a fighter pilot and was taking down all kinds of targets. Ukraine has since confirmed that this person does not exist and. To be fair to, to most researchers I followed, there was always caution uh, and skepticism at elevating reports about this person or this figure. But many, many people in the West believe, and perhaps more importantly, 
uh, many people in Ukraine likely believed, and, and that's and it probably served to boost morale there, and that was likely the the motivation behind so much of it. Um, I suppose the the fundamental difference between the the claims and arguments and and persuasive or strategic communication that is coming from Ukraine and and, and Russia is that uh, for Ukraine. They are using media and communications to, to foster support for humanitarian aid, uh, financial support, increase political pressure to accelerate sanctions and, and also seek military aid, of course. But it's, it's all geared towards fostering support in, in the West, basically. For Russia, they're using their media and their comms to to justify their invasion of a sovereign country and, and, and the murder of thousands or tens of thousands of Ukrainians to portray themselves as the victim and to try and deny their responsibility. So their motivations are uh, undemocratic or they're illiberal or they're, they're unjust. And, and, and it does come back to um, the kind of approach that, that the fact checkers or researchers or news organizations take to uh, claims that are put out by Ukraine. And, and yes, all claims should be uh, stood up and should be verified or debunked if needs be, and they should be disseminated to audience as well. But for fact-checkers, that makes this a very difficult challenge, especially if uh, a large proportion of your audience may not want to believe or may not want to believe that something like the, the Ghost of Kiev is not a, a, a whiz fighter pilot, but is in fact a, a tool of, of morale-boosting propaganda for the Ukrainian side. That's a good point there, because as I'm sure Christine will back up, people don't necessarily always like or agree with everything that you fact check, even if it's if it's correct. And Christine, we've we've talked here a lot about, you know, social media companies, social media being the place where people are able to spread misinformation and disinformation. So what role have the social media companies played in actually tackling it? What have they been doing about this? They have done some work, but at the same time, they're the reason why so much of it has spread. So I'd be kind of wary about praising them too much for finally trying to get their house in order um, when they're the reason that we're all in the situation that we're in at the moment. So I think particularly, I was going to say after Trump, but actually it wasn't even then. Um, it was more since coronavirus, we've seen them being an awful, all of them being an awful lot more proactive um, than they were in the past. So, you know, I was going, actually Trump is a good example. You could see, you know, as his presidency uh, was in its, its final uh, days, he was banned from, from Facebook and from Twitter and they took a stronger approach to people spreading misinformation. So during coronavirus, we saw an awful lot of accounts being banned on across all of them, say across YouTube, across Twitter, across Facebook. And they're doing more efforts to both to cut down on the amount of people who are sharing misinformation and also to try and promote good information. So you might see on a lot of the platforms that sometimes you might, there'll be a post in your feed about coronavirus and there'll be a little information message at the bottom of it, which might say something like, get some information from the HSE about COVID-19, uh, you know, things like that to try and get people to um, get access to good information rather than, than false information, um, which is something. I think the, the difficult thing is that we don't know how much any of this has really worked. We still know that there's huge amounts of misinformation out there. So I think it's good that the, the platforms are doing something. I'm just not sure if you can roll back the tide at this stage when they've just done so much to allow all of this to, to spread. They literally, you know, you couldn't have come up with a better place or a better experiment for sharing this information than the way that Facebook and Twitter and the platforms have been over the last few years. It was basically just this perfect set of conditions to allow false stories to spread. And now because, you know, so it was easy, it was straightforward, it was very quick to be able you were very quick to be able to find communities of people who are interested in the same things that you were interested in if you had a particular uh, interest 
So now they're trying to roll that back. And honestly, I think it's a little bit too late. I think it's very much about like, you know, the, the, there are limits to what they are able to do. So it's good that they're trying to do these things, but it's just, you know, I'd be very skeptical about how much of an impact they can actually have. And Kiron, you spend a lot of time on sites like on apps like TikTok looking at, you know, every day what sort of information is on there. I mean, are you seeing, would you agree with what Christine is saying there in terms of like how they're tackling it and how effective it is? Yes, uh, 100%. These these companies do not want to be the arbiters of truth is the phrase they, they trot out time and time again. So they outsource uh, these kinds of tasks to fact-checking organizations and that's a positive step. But They've, they've been slow to act and they've been dragged to the table when there was finally enough uh, political pressure for them to act. And, and this is as a result of things like 2016 with Trump and Brexit, also COVID. But this also came after the fact when a country like Philippines, uh, the Philippines was patient zero for disinformation and uh, for controlled networks of, 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 of inauthentic accounts to help elevate the presidency uh, candidacy of Rodrigo Duterte at the time. It also came after a genocide in Myanmar that had uh, the Facebook played a large role in and so many other incidents and events like that. Fact-checking has been positive as it is, it is confirmation by social media organizations that their platforms uh, are havens uh, for false, has been acceptance rather, that their platforms are havens for, for false and misleading information that can cause harm. But it is only one part of the solution um, and, and the other has to be, touching upon I think what Christine was saying there, the other has to be something like legislation that moves away from uh, a kind of almost whack-a-mole response sometimes to problems as they arise towards something that is more uh, systemic or has kind of safety by design built into the actual implementation and creation of the tools that so many people are getting their information from rather than trying to catch the horse after it's bolted. And and you can see other platforms kind of facing the same issues and problems that, that Facebook or others faced years ago. And of course, the biggest example right now is TikTok because it has gone from being um, unknown in, in, in the West and unknown across the world up to four years ago to then becoming one of the top tier platforms over 1 billion users and how they're approaching these kinds of problems uh, does show how platforms have learned uh, because uh, something like a platform again like TikTok will be very vocal in showing the the efforts for increased transparency, how they're tackling these problems, how they're enforcing their community guidelines, but it also shows how platforms still face the same fundamental problems of trying to, first of all, craft and design policy that are nuanced and have an understanding of the problems on their platforms. But then what is often the case is the enforcement gap between how those policies are actually implemented in in removing uh, egregiously harmful or misleading or dangerous content on their platform. In so many ways, it does show that platforms are learning, but also platforms also have a long way to go. And it does seem like uh, pieces of legislation like the Digital Services Act and you uh, will form a large part of how we uh, conceptualize and, and rate how platforms are doing in the future and, and something that has to be much more systemic in its approach rather than the whack-a-mole approach we've taken the last few years. And indeed, we'll also have the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill in Ireland as well uh, coming through, which will hopefully do some work in terms of tackling the harms caused anyway. And finally, I mean, to both of you, we've spoken there about the social media sites themselves, how they tackle it. But what about the public? Are people getting better now at spotting misinformation? Is there just more heightened awareness? And can that in its own way play a role against kind of fighting against all of this? I'll go to you, Kieran, first and then Christine on it. 
I think so. I think the public have gotten better, or maybe they're getting better at highlighting examples of misleading uh, or fake information or asking others not to share. But I think uh, something like COVID-19 had some positive aspects in that it made people more aware about the kinds of information that they were being uh, forwarded by others or the veracity of the claims uh, made in in the videos that were shared with them or the the screenshot of an article that was supposedly from the WHO or or any of these kinds of claims. I mean, the the, the bellwether I use for for things like this is is my own mother who uh, her her social network comprises of WhatsApp and she gets messages from friends and things like that. And she uh, would now be more cautious in sharing things than she may have been before uh, COVID nineteen, even if they're even if they're only conspiracy theories about the royal family, but <laughs> but she she's more but she's more aware of these kind of things now. So at least in that respect, it, it does seem for me as well as more awareness now. Whether or not it's effective, uh, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I would be slightly less optimistic about it. I I find it really hard to tell whether or not people are better at spotting misinformation or not. Um, I think particularly for older people who wouldn't have grown up with the internet. Um, and when I say older, I mean maybe people in their fifties or sixties. Um, I think that we find generally that people who kind of grow up with the internet might be more used to not trusting everything that they see. Like there's an automatic skepticism there. But for people who still have that faith in, you know, institutions and in, in media, it can be a little bit more difficult to spot um, when there are false stories, you know, being shared on platforms, whether they're about the royal family or, or somebody else or other um, things instead. And I'm just not sure. I think that because misinformation has gotten so hard to spot, because it can be so muddy and so, you know, gray it's not always black and white i think it just it's a it's a big battle like i don't know that we're like there's just there's so much of it and there's so it's constant it's on so many platforms it's not just like it's on facebook and twitter anymore it's spreading into messaging apps too and all the places where people are online and you know you even see it with the scam text messages that people get about you know oh your bank of ireland account your aib account has been um has been scammed there's some issue with it and people do fall for those an awful lot of of times because they are so difficult to spot and that's even given everything we've heard over the last few years about trying to spot false news stories and trying to be kind of inoculated against um, misinformation or or scams so i don't know i'd like to be optimistic about it but i'm just not sure that we're, we're winning the war at the moment plenty uh, to chew on there i think and this is definitely going to be a topic we'll be revisiting no doubt on the explainer podcast in the future thanks so much christine and Kiron for talking us through all of that thanks very much thanks Eva. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thanks to Christine and Kieran for joining us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and me, Aoife Barry. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in, nor responsibility for, the editorial content published by the project. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You could head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to our podcasts, and we love that. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and they'll love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.